0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Some of the music for today's episode is by St. Patrick, and it has generously been shared with you by my friend, who you may know as the Captain from True Crime Garage. I hope you enjoy it. I'll share links where you can find the music at the end of the episode. Thanks, Captain. for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. This is the last chapter in the series, Survivor Stories. We've seen the strength and courage of three young women who survived violent crimes and also the aftermath. This story has some of those same elements, but we'll also see what happens when the monster is set loose. How and why this happens in this case and the consequences are mind-boggling. Each one of the cases in this series has caused conversations and a variety of responses. Many listeners are awed by the strength and resilience of their survivors. Some were angered by the perpetrators or the way the authorities responded or failed to respond when the crimes occurred. And some had questions about one aspect of the case or another. I will be putting out a bonus episode to respond to some of these questions, as well as share other information on these cases on Patreon. To become a Patreon supporter to get access to this episode and other bonus content, go to Patreon.com. You can become a supporter for as little as $1 per month. The wrap-up episode for this series will be available in the next couple of weeks. Thanks. This is Chapter 4 of our series, Survivor Stories, The Case of Mary Vincent. In 1978, Mary Vincent was a 15-year-old from Las Vegas, Nevada, who was having trouble at home. She began rebelling against her parents, Lucy, who was employed as a casino car dealer, and Herb, a slot machine repairman. The trouble she had at home caused Mary to begin skipping school and running away. She'd ended up in Northern California for a time, living with a boyfriend in his car. And when that ended, Mary spent some time near Santa Cruz at an uncle's home. But by the end of the summer, after knocking around and living on the streets in Northern California, Mary wanted to get back to family. She was lonely and homesick, and life on the streets was rough. She had bummed rides and hitchhiked her way hundreds of miles, and now she decided to hitchhike to the Los Angeles area where her grandfather lived. She began in Berkeley, California, hoping to thumb a ride the 400 miles south to Corona, California. In 1978, many young people used hitchhiking as a common form of transportation. At any one time, you could see a number of teens and young adults standing near freeway on ramps, with signs signaling their destinations. This was a scene that greeted 51-year-old Larry Singleton, a former merchant marine. Mary wasn't the only young person standing near the off-ramp holding a sign. In fact, there were at least three teens, one male, who held signs seeking rides to Southern California. Mary had spoken to the others as they waited to be offered a ride. But when Larry Singleton stopped his blue van, he only offered a ride to Mary. The others told her not to accept it, If he was only offering one lone girl a ride, he was probably a creep, they warned. Mary did not heed their warnings. She really wanted to get home, and she didn't want to wait and possibly not be offered a ride for hours, if at all. Besides, she thought, he was an old man. He was wearing a coverall jumpsuit, like a mechanic would wear, and he was heavyset. He looked like a grandpa type, she thought, and totally harmless. He told her he had a daughter about her age, and said he was headed south. She accepted the ride. But right away, he began to change. As they drove, Mary sneezed, and he put his hand on the back of her neck, trying to pull her towards him. "'Let's see if you're sick,' he leered. Disgusted at his immediate attempt to hit on her, she pulled away, sitting as close to the passenger door as possible. Not long afterwards, Singleton told Mary that he was actually headed north to Reno, but he could take her to the Interstate 5 Junction, which would be the quickest way for her to get to Southern California. If she'd known anything about Larry Singleton, Mary probably would have jumped from the van and tucked and rolled her way away from him. Singleton was twice divorced and had been previously convicted of contributing to the delinquency of a minor. He'd spent his early life working on ships and sailing around the world and had become a heavy drinker. When drinking, he had a quick and violent temper. He did have a daughter the same age as Mary. He'd recently become very angry at his 15-year-old daughter, Deborah. However, unlike Mary's parents, when angry or frustrated, Larry would lash out violently at Deborah, and she was afraid of him. Mary was tough and street-smart, and she felt that she'd shut the old man down in no uncertain terms. She didn't worry about him trying anything with her again. Tired, she settled into the passenger seat and soon fell asleep. When she woke up, she noticed the freeway signs, They had passed the I-5 junction and were now headed north on 80, straight towards Reno, Nevada. Angry now, she reached down under her seat and pulled out a long, sharp object. Singleton had worked as a road surveyor, and it was a pointed surveyor stick. She brandished it at him. Turn around right now, she demanded. Surprisingly, he did. I'm just an honest man who made an honest mistake, he told her. I'm not going to hurt you. They continued on in the right direction now and it began to get dark. Now he began drinking liquor out of an empty milk container. Singleton pulled off the freeway and headed down a deserted road toward the canyon. He told Mary he needed to stop and relieve himself and couldn't wait until the next town. Mary now was suspicious, but she thought, he's old, I'm young, I'm fast, he's slow, I can get away once he stops. He got out of the van and walked away. She waited, then opened the passenger door and got out. She looked down and noticed that her shoe was untied. She bent down to tie it so as not to trip when she ran. Just as she bent over her shoe, she felt a blow to the back of her head. Singleton had a crowbar in his hand and hit her before she even saw the weapon. She blacked out. Fair warning. The next part describes rape and a vicious attack. If this is a trigger for you, you may want to skip forward. When Mary came to, her hands were tied behind her back and she had been thrown into the back of the van. Singleton raped her multiple times over the next few hours. At one point, he fell asleep, but Mary was still tied up and was unable to get away. Leaving her in the back of the van, Singleton climbed into the driver's seat and drove a few miles deeper into the canyon. It was pitch black now. He stopped the van and cut the ties from her hands. He told her he'd let her go, "'if she did what he said. "'He forced her to drink alcohol. "'If she didn't comply, he told her he'd kill her. "'Then he raped her again. "'She passed out a second time. "'When she came to, he told her to get out of the van "'and lie on the edge of the road. "'Mary was now terrified and kept pleading with him "'to just set her free. "'Please, please set me free,' she begged. "'I won't tell. "'Mary's ordeal had lasted for several hours "'beginning at sunset.' She had been in the van and raped over the course of the entire night. When he finally cut the ties from her hands, the sun was just beginning to come up. She was still not able to run. Her feet were still tied. He made her lie on the ground. While she was still pleading with him to set her free, he reached into the van and pulled out an object from the toolbox. In one swift move, he grabbed her left arm and raised the object. It was a hatchet. He swung it at her striking her arm just below the elbow. As he'd grabbed her arm, Mary had gripped onto his arm, trying to stop what was coming. But his other hand held the hatchet. She could feel herself falling and couldn't figure out why, since she was holding onto his arm. As she fell to the ground, he raised the hatchet a second time and struck her in the right arm. He was screaming at her, You want to be free? I'll set you free. She was kicking and trying to move her body backwards away from him, It was then she glanced down and saw that her right arm was no longer attached to her body. She began to scream, feeling the searing pain and shock of what had just happened. She looked at Singleton, who had stopped the attack. He was waving his arm up and down by the side of his body, and she finally realized what he was doing. Her arm had gripped his to ward off the first blow, just before he struck it with the axe. Her muscles had tightened, and the hand and the bottom portion of her arm was locked onto his in a death grip, and now he was trying to shake it loose. A note. I debated whether to include this gruesome detail, but decided to do so because a question remained in my mind after hearing about it. These details come straight from Mary's account. I wonder if the image of the bloody arm gripped onto him so tightly often returned to Larry Singleton, and if he ever woke screaming from the nightmare that he created in his own memories. I certainly hope so. But as horrible as his vicious assault was against the young girl, Singleton still hadn't ended Mary's hideous nightmare. He now dragged the girl along the ground by her feet. At this point, Mary believes that he probably thought she was dead because she had stopped moving and just lay still. He pitched her body down a ravine into a 30-foot drop. As he threw her over the railing, she heard him say, Now you're free. Four of her ribs broke in the fall. He then scrambled down and dragged her body into a concrete drainage pipe, probably to conceal it. Then he left. Mary was in and out of consciousness. When the hatchet cut into her causing excruciating pain, she only wished to die. Now she willed herself to live. She remembers feeling cold and so very tired. With every fiber of her being, she just wanted to sleep. But she knew if she did so, She would probably never wake up. As her eyes started to close, she says she heard a voice. It seemed to come from somewhere very far away and was faint, but she heard it clearly say, don't go to sleep, you have to live. If you don't, he's going to do this to someone else. You can't let that happen. Mary says she doesn't know if it was a heavenly being or just her conscience, but she listened to it. The most amazing thing is that she was not thinking of her own life. To Mary, if she let go in that moment, all the pain and horror for her would be over. No, she wasn't thinking of herself at all. All she could think of was that another girl might suffer at the hands of her attacker if she gave up. Her goal now was to get out of the ravine and make it back to the road for help. Of course, the first question is, how is she ever going to make it back up the incline with no hands to pull herself up with? Both of her arms were gone below the elbow. Mary was bleeding profusely, and she had the idea that if she was to dig her stumps into the earth, dragging herself upwards as she did so, the dirt might pack the wound and help slow the bleeding. Very slowly, inch by inch, Mary pulled herself up. The whole time, she was listening intently. First, she was listening to make sure her attacker was not still in the area. She heard nothing. It was silent. But in the distance, faintly, she could hear the sound of cars on the freeway and knew she needed to head towards that sound. Luckily, she still had the use of her legs and feet. However, she was naked and barefoot. She continued to push herself to not give up. Hours later, she was able to make it out of the culvert and onto the deserted road. She still had to walk three miles to get to the main road, holding her arms up high to slow the bleeding. Finally, she spotted a car coming up the road. It was a red convertible with two men inside. She was walking in the middle of the road calling, Help me, help me. Spotting her, the car slowed. But as it got nearer and the men saw the naked and bloody girl, they sped up and passed her by. Later, she would say she completely understood their reaction. I must have looked like something from a Fright Night movie, she says. Mary thought that was it. She would surely die now. Everyone was too afraid of the sight of her to even stop. She continued walking in the middle of the road. Then she saw a second vehicle, an old truck with a couple inside. They were taking a road trip on their honeymoon. They ended up at the Del Puerto Canyon near Patterson, California, where Mary had been attacked and dumped. In Mary's only lucky break so far, the couple had missed their exit off the freeway and ended up on the side road where they had found her. When they saw Mary, they screeched to a stop. The first thing Mary said to them was, He raped me. They lifted her into the truck and wrapped her in towels. They drove as fast as they could to a payphone to call 911. Mary was airlifted by helicopter to a nearby hospital. Mary was alive when she arrived at the hospital, but just barely. She had lost half of the volume of blood in her body, and the other half had become toxic and was poisoning her. She was also in shock. Luckily, Mary was young and healthy before the attack and was able to make a slow but steady recovery. She spent a month in the hospital. She was fitted with prosthetic arms that had pinchers to use as her hands and fingers. It was difficult to learn to care for herself without hands. Many times she wanted to give up, but she had a very good and persistent physical therapist who told her, you must and you will. So she kept practicing. Only 10 days after being admitted to the hospital, she was questioned by police about her attack. She was able to give them a description that was turned into a police sketch. The likeness was so accurate that Singleton's neighbor in San Pablo, California, recognized him immediately and called police. Singleton's home in San Pablo was searched, and Mary's cigarettes were found among his things, as well as portions of her clothing that he had tried to burn. Singleton also had a home in Nevada and had driven the van there where he asked a neighbor to help him clean it out. He had removed all the carpet from inside the van and washed it, as well as the interior. A few days after that, he attempted to commit suicide by taking an overdose of sleeping pills. He was picked up by the Nevada police and returned to California. Mary picked his picture out of a photo lineup. After his arrest, he told investigators that Mary was a prostitute, He called her a $10 a night whore. He admitted that Mary had been in his van, but if anything had happened to her, he wasn't to blame, he said. He told detectives the following account. He said he had picked up Mary and two male hitchhikers named Larry and Pedro. Larry drove them to a bar where the two Larrys, Pedro and Mary, bought weed and smoked it together. He then got back on the road with all three hitchhikers. They pulled off the main highway onto a side road, He and the other two men paid Mary for sex. Singleton claimed he fell asleep afterwards. When he woke up, Larry, the other Larry, was driving the van towards San Francisco. Mary's clothes were in the van, but she was gone. She had her hands in the till, Larry told him, which I take to mean she was stealing from them. He said that she'd been sent to Los Angeles Uh, without her clothes. Maybe that's just another euphemism. Singleton said he dropped off Larry and Pedro in San Francisco. If anything had happened to the girl in his van, he told investigators, then the crimes had been committed by the other Larry, while he himself had been passed out drunk. I find it interesting that he gave the imaginary perpetrator his own name, calling Dr. Freud. The physical evidence, including blood evidence, in Singleton's home and van was overwhelming. He was charged with rape, sodomy, oral copulation, kidnapping, mayhem, and attempted murder. Five months after leaving the hospital, Mary appeared in court to testify at Singleton's trial. Because the crime had become such a sensation in Northern California, the trial was moved to San Diego County, which thankfully was closer to her home in Las Vegas. While Mary testified, she couldn't look at Singleton, terrified to be in the same room with him. During her testimony, she became so traumatized at the retelling of her attack that she began to regress into a frightened childlike state. I heard it, I heard it, she said, about the rape before breaking down. Singleton's statement made to police after his arrest was played in court. He not only claimed that Mary was a prostitute, but that she had threatened and kidnapped him. She threatened to maim him and accuse him of rape if he didn't drive her to L.A., he said. She had sex with the two strangers, the hitchhikers, and also offered to have sex with him, for money, of course. The other men must have attacked her and then framed him, he explained. The court didn't buy it, of course. Singleton was found guilty on all charges. For the attempted murder charge, he was given ten years, including six years for the offense, one year for the use of a weapon, and three for the infliction of great bodily harm. For the rape, he was given one and one-third years consecutively, for oral copulation, one year for each count consecutively, for sodomy, the same, one year consecutively. The counts of mayhem and kidnapping were stayed, pending completion of the sentences on the other counts. If all that sounds like somewhat of a slap on the wrist for the magnitude of his crime, I would agree. In total, Singleton received a sentence of 14 and one-third years, the maximum amount allowed at the time due to mandatory sentencing guidelines. He was credited with 225 days for the time he spent in jail before and during his trial and sentencing. On his way out of the courtroom when he passed by Mary, he muttered to her that he would, quote, finish the job if it's the last thing I do. Mary Vincent's sentence, however, would last a lifetime. Months and months of physical pain, coupled with years of emotional pain and distress, were ahead of her. She returned to Las Vegas to live with her parents after being released from the hospital. They sent her to a school for the disabled, and she began seeing a psychiatrist. She had night terrors and would wake up screaming. The fear never left her, and she was frustrated just trying to get dressed or do simple tasks without the use of her hands. She became depressed and felt like a freak, she said. She was constantly talked about and pointed out as the girl who that terrible thing had happened to. It had been well covered in the news, of course, and her missing arms were a constant reminder and identified her immediately. She felt there was nowhere she could go, Nowhere she could hide. Everyone would always know what had happened to her. She avoided her previous friends, who now treated her differently. It took a toll on her family as well. Her father began collecting guns and had fantasies of killing his daughter's rapist. Mary began to act out again, especially after she started seeing a therapist. It brought back up all the horrible memories for her, and she acted out wildly in order to escape them. Mary's attack caused more stress in the home and her parents eventually split up. Herb moved to Alaska while Lucy stayed in Las Vegas. Mary graduated from high school and tried to find some purpose in her life. She once had aspired to be a dancer, but in order to save her right arm, muscle had been taken from one of her legs, weakening it. For a time, she visited schools to do presentations, warning kids about the dangers of hitchhiking. During one presentation, a boy in the audience yelled obscenities at her, and she felt like she was being attacked again. She gave it up so as not to risk becoming re-traumatized. Mary moved away from Las Vegas to live in a small community in California, when she hoped would provide her some anonymity. Over time, she became very skilled using her prosthetic arms and was able to care for herself with help from some friends. She began a relationship with a man and had a son. She was a young disabled mother who took good care of her baby. That's all people knew. In her new town, she didn't have to endure the whispers of strangers. Nobody asked her what happened to her arms. They probably just think I was born this way, she said. Because of sentencing laws at the time of Singleton's conviction, he only received a maximum sentence of 14 and one-third years. Even so, he decided to appeal his sentence, still denying that he was Mary Vincent's attacker, even though there was overwhelming evidence. The appeal argued that the trial court abused its discretion in denying the motion to enter a psychiatrist report showing Singleton was possibly a, quote, mentally disordered sex offender. The state psychiatric examination of Singleton stated that there were no signs of any delusions, hallucinations, or disturbances in memory or thought process. And at the age of 51, he'd had no prior history of sex crimes. It further found that Singleton's history presented as, quote, a fairly normal sex life with episodes of violence apparently triggered by excessive use of alcohol. It's odd that he was arguing that he should have been classified a mentally disordered sex offender, when he completely denied raping Mary Vincent. The most interesting part of the appeal record, I thought, is where they make an argument for reduced sentence based on the fact that Singleton was charged with attempted murder. The claim was that cutting off the girl's arms was not an attempt at murdering her. Um, what? The state shoots this down in their answer by first conceding that perhaps this act did not constitute attempted murder, but then brings up an obvious point. It reads, the act of chopping off the girl's arms, while evidencing a whole series of most heinous crimes, could arguably not show the requisite intent to commit murder in the first degree. It is Singleton's act of abandoning the bleeding, armless child in a wilderness, shoved in a tunnel, that proves beyond reasonable doubt the requisite intent for attempted murder in the first degree, and thus warrants the greater punishment. Uh, duh. His appeal, of course, was denied. But it was a small victory because Singleton only served eight years four months of his 14-year sentence after time was taken off for good behavior while in prison. He was released in April of 1988. Right before his release, he did another odd thing. He filed a complaint in Placer Valley Superior Court against his victim, Mary Vincent, charging her with forcible kidnap for the purpose of robbery. What a guy. Perhaps he was still trying to proclaim his innocence as a counter to Mary Vincent's lawsuit. She won a $2.56 million judgment against Singleton in early 1988. By September of that year, she would forego efforts to try and collect any of the money. His lawyer stated in a deposition that Singleton only had about $200 in savings and would be living on only $600 a month in Social Security disability benefits. Or perhaps Singleton thought casting himself as the victim would change the way he had been portrayed in the media after his crime was discovered. He was, of course, portrayed as the worst sort of monster imaginable. Now that he was going to be set free, he was trying to gain some public sympathy, it seems. If this was his goal, it backfired. Hard. All it served to do was remind people of what a dangerous and scary person he was. Because of this, there were protests all over the state when people learned of his imminent release. No one wanted him in their community. He was universally despised from San Francisco to San Diego and beyond. He even received death threats. I remember this well. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area and at the time was living in San Jose. Each time the parole board would approve Singleton's plan to reside in a certain city or town, there would be an uprising against it by that community. At one point, it was discovered that he was to be paroled to a motel near downtown San Jose the motel located on Monterey Road was used by a poor and transient population and was situated among fast food joints and auto body repair shops. He wasn't even welcome there, and protesters descended on City Hall. I guess it was the San Jose Police or Sheriff's Department or whoever approved such things that denied it. This continued to happen in city after city until there was nowhere left to house the paroled Singleton. With no alternatives left, the state of California finally had to come up with a creative solution. They decided to place a trailer on San Quentin prison grounds where Singleton would live for the remainder of his parole period or approximately one year. The outrage people expressed after his light sentence and early parole for such a heinous crime led to the passage of a bill in 1998 known as the Singleton Bill. It carries a 25 years to life sentence with possible parole for aggravated mayhem. If he had been convicted when this bill was the law, Singleton would have served at least 41 years. After his parole ended, Singleton decided to return to his hometown of Tampa, Florida. Protests and threats followed him there as well. A local car dealer even offered him $5,000 to stay out of the state. Someone else firebombed the front yard of his brother's house where he was staying. He finally settled in the Orient Park area of Tampa he moved into an old house owned by his family. He'd been away long enough that some of the residents didn't know about his past. Others felt like he'd done his time and put his past behind him. They saw him as an older man who lived quietly, kept his home and yard neat and tidy, and helped neighbors with odd jobs. He was accepted there. As well-meaning as his neighbors might have been, willing to give Singleton a second chance and believe he was reformed, they were either sadly mistaken or duped by a manipulative monster, time would prove that a person like Lawrence Singleton could not be reformed. Mary Vincent went into hiding before Singleton was released. She was still afraid for her life, believing the last words he would said to her, vowing to finish the job. Her relationship with her son's father ended. Later, she married and had a second son, but the marriage fell apart. She believes in part her husband could not handle the notoriety that followed her wherever she went. She lived in the Pacific Northwest with her sons and tried to escape attention. She just wanted her and her children to have a normal life. She had become very proficient using her prosthetic arms, and most of the time was successful at doing things on her own. She had a good friend and neighbor who helped her when she struggled with some of her or her children's needs. Life was challenging emotionally for Mary, though. She still suffered the residual trauma, had some physical pain caused by her injuries, and battled depression. She had thoughts of suicide more than once over the years, and only thinking of her children kept her from acting on them. She lived simply in a trailer park in a small unnamed town. She'd struggled financially over the years. She never received any money from the lawsuit and was only awarded $13,000 from a California Victims Fund. When she received a small settlement from an automobile accident, it was counted as income and her disability payments were halted. At the same time, she needed a new set of prosthetic arms, which would cost approximately $15,000. Her attorney worked pro bono to help her get her disability payments reinstated. She met a man who became her rock and her protector and settled into a long-term relationship. Her boyfriend, Bob, ran a bicycle parts business and bred Neapolitan Mastiffs, a large and powerful dog breed that can weigh up to 150 pounds. They are often used as guard dogs and are fiercely loyal to their owners. Bob was also engaged in the sport of bare-knuckle fighting. Mary and her sons felt protected and enjoyed an anonymous life out of the spotlight. That is, until February of 1997, when her world blew up once more. Larry Singleton had lived in Tampa, Florida for only a year when he was picked up for the first of three shoplifting charges he would be arrested on over the next couple of years. At one of his court hearings, he described himself to the judge as a, quote, confused, muddle-headed old man. After that, he seemed to stay out of trouble. In January 1997, a neighbor and his son found Singleton sitting in his van breathing the car's exhaust through a dryer hose he had attached to the tailpipe. They pulled him from the car, foiling his suicide attempt. The man had no knowledge of Singleton's past and just figured he was a sick and lonely old man who became desperate. Maybe that was true, or maybe the demons continued to visit him and things were coming to a head. Singleton spent a week in a psychiatric facility and then signed himself out to return home. Just three weeks later, a man who had done some work on Singleton's home stopped by and heard some loud noises coming from inside the house. He looked through the window and saw Singleton. He was standing nude in the living room and was choking and punching a naked woman who was calling for help. He ran and called 911. When a sheriff's deputy arrived, Singleton answered the door covered in blood. He explained it away, saying he'd cut himself chopping vegetables. Just then the phone rang in Singleton's house, and as he left the door to answer it, The deputy peeked inside. He saw a nude, bloody body of a woman lying on the living room floor. Singleton was arrested and charged with the murder of Roxanne Hayes, a 31 year old mother of three. She had suffered multiple stab wounds in her upper body with a butcher knife. Hayes was well known in the area as a sex worker who solicited customers from a Tampa Park bench. She had left her home where she lived with her boyfriend and her three children to shop for groceries. It's believed she ran into Singleton and thought she could turn a quick trick and make a few dollars before heading home. Less than an hour later, she was dead. Authorities said it was unusual for a sex worker to travel to a client's home, but as another professional in the area remarked, you don't think a 70-year-old is going to stab you to death. As Singleton was led away by police, he said, they framed me the first time, but this time I did it. Later, however he would change his story and plead not guilty. The neighborhood saved his life not more than a month earlier said, when I found out about the murder, the first thing I thought was, should I have left that man in there? If I had known about his past, I probably would have at least given it a second thought. Mary Vincent's world turned upside down once again when she found out about the murder of Roxanne Hayes. The phone started to ring again with requests for interviews. The story about her attack by Singleton was now back on the front pages. Her nightmares returned, and she couldn't stop thinking about the woman he murdered. But courageously, Mary Vincent did agree to one appearance, to testify at the penalty phase of Singleton's murder trial. She recounted her attack and survival, She was the one person who looked into the eyes of the monster, who now claimed to be a confused and frail old man. She recalled the words he'd said as he drove off with her in the wrong direction, 24 years earlier. I'm an honest man who made an honest mistake. When asked to identify the man who'd raped and mutilated her, Mary Vincent pointed one hooked hand at Singleton. Singleton had been found guilty of the first-degree murder of Roxanne Hayes, and was sentenced to death. In April of nineteen ninety eight. He was sent to Florida's death row, but died less than three years later of cancer. Singleton's daughter Deborah, who was the same age as Mary Vincent, also feared her father. He had physically attacked her when she was a teen, and she knew how violent his temper was. She, like prison psychologist who testified for the prosecution, believed Singleton had a deep-seated hatred for women and would continue to be violent. She had no doubt that he was guilty of the crime against Mary Vincent. She took measures to make sure he couldn't find her after he was released from the California prison in 1988. When she was 20 years old, with the help of her therapist, she wrote to her father in prison and told him she was terminating their relationship. The following year, she legally changed her name and moved out of California. She completed college and became a professional. She was already living anonymously with her new identity when Singleton was sentenced to death. In the late 1990s, after Larry Singleton was safely behind bars on death row, Mary Vincent moved to California and got a job clerking in a Southern California district attorney's office. There she met an investigator, Tom Wilson, who she later married. Her new husband gave her an easel and charcoal pencils, and she began drawing portraits. She even presented one of her portraits to then-California Governor Gray Davis. She also created the Mary Vincent Foundation to help other victims of traumatic crime. In 1999, at the second annual Anti-Violence Day at Candlestick Park, she threw out the first pitch of the San Francisco Giants game. that will do it for this episode of once upon a crime we'll be back next week with a new series and i hope you'll join me then you can follow me on twitter at upon a crime and on facebook and instagram at once upon a crime pod there's also a facebook group page you can join we'd love to add you to the community of true crime followers and listeners i want to thank my friend the captain from true crime garage for sharing his music for today's episode. Didn't you love those songs? So good. He is so friggin' talented. You can find his new release, I'm Okay by St. Patrick, in the iTunes store, or at his website, captainfathands.com. Links can be found in today's show notes as well. Thanks, Captain. You literally rock. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.
1: Other guys who waste your love and waste your time. We could dance around the street.